Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Andrew Goldstein, a primary care doctor and activist. According to his short bio, he's focused on civic engagement, health worker organization, and progressive internationalism. We present Andrew Goldstein. Well, you're very welcome to the show, Andrew. I wanted to start by exploring what it is like where you are just now. Uh, you know, in these particular times, what is it like practicing in New York at the moment? Yeah, I'm a primary care doctor at a public hospital. So the U.S. healthcare system is very balkanized, um, very fragmented along many different lines. But most hospitals are, are private. Some are for profit. Some are are nonprofit. Um, but there are a few uh, government-run public hospitals, and I work at one of them in the city of New York. And I'm at the tertiary hospital. There's a you know about a dozen hospitals as part of the public hospital system in our city. And and the hospital that I, I work at is a tertiary referral one um, and has primary care embedded in that. And so we see, you know, people who have multiple comorbidities, many different medical conditions, um, and we're their primary care doctors um, based there. And that care has just been transformed with COVID um, hitting the city like a tidal wave because uh, people can't come to our hospital, um, you know, because people are actually coming from, you know, throughout the city, not just the local community for their care. Usually it's very disrupted. And, and so we are forced in a, a good way um, to shift to telemedicine in ways that we hadn't already. And then also just having like a hotline to make sure we're immediately available to anyone with COVID questions. Um, so those are some, you know, good delivery shifts that we've, we've been doing that I've been working on. And, you know, I've also done some, you know, COVID evaluation in a, a tent we set up in our courtyard. And tomorrow I'm actually going to be um, attending for our, our inpatient team, which is, you know, 80% COVID patients right now. So thinking about it in terms of the chronic diseases that you talked about, multimorbidities, and given that, you know, you're now relying on telemedicine, are you concerned that these comorbidities are going to get a, a good deal worse in the next six, uh, three to six months? because people are not able to access healthcare. Yeah, that's the worry. I think that there are definitely people for whom telemedicine is not ideal. You know, not everyone has connectivity. Not everyone has a phone. Not everyone has a phone that's regularly on. People have different habits with using their phones. And I think that, you know, if they're physically in front of you, you can have that conversation. They had a date, they had a time, they came into the clinic. Um, so there, there's, you know, definitely some uh, extra levels of vulnerability that happen when people sort of relying on, on getting a phone call at a specific time and, and even during a time window. And, and I, I think when we have those conversations, there's also the limits of what we can do in those moments. I think on the flip side, though, there are some opportunities. Like it's much easier to have like five minute visits over the course of a month to titrate someone's insulin. And my usual workflow doesn't really accommodate that. Um, so that's actually been a, a nice relief is that this moment is, has enabled me to be like, oh, your your diabetes is very uncontrolled. I'm going to give you a call in three days. And I actually have some more flexibility on my schedule. And we have this opportunity of doing visits um, by telephone. So there's, you know, it's a mixed picture, but I, I am very worried that people, you know, are, are going to be fearful about coming into care and, and telephone based care might not be the best fit for them. So the inequities that already exist within the system have been kind of brought into sharp relief by the fact that people are now having to be technologically enabled in order to even access the care that you're offering. 
Exactly. And, you know, our, our patients um, are predominantly on Medicaid, which is government public insurance, or they're uninsured. Um, many people don't have cell phones. Many people are, you know, uh, ages, they're in their seventh, eighth decade of life. They've never had a cell phone. They've always had a landline. Some of our patients are unhoused. They've had their phone stolen three times in the past year. Their number is constantly changing. Um, and so there's a, a variety of different cases of, of people who, you know, the, the telephone really isn't, isn't ideal for them. And, and this means that they can't physically show up at a place where they could rely on getting care for them before. Now, being primary care clinicians, we tend to be very creative in how we address these issues. Where do you see the glimmer of hope for people who are in this situation? So I think that there's a, a moment where people who, you know, oftentimes are too busy to come in for medical care because life has so much, has put so much on their plate, um, that there's a real moment to say like, look, like we're going to provide you medical care. That's sort of, I'll call you when I have a free moment. And when you have a free moment, we'll just talk for a few minutes and we'll like get on top of like one issue each time that we do that. Yeah. And then I think that that's a, a level of flexibility that I'm really excited to be able to offer people. Cause usually it's like, all right, you're here for what is scheduled as a 20 minute visit. Maybe we'll stretch it to an hour or 40 minutes or something like that. But um, we're going to try to hit, you know, six to 10 issues at once. Um, and I think that that's both, you know, a lot of time that some people can't always afford and therefore they miss visits. But then also I, I think that cognitively talking about 10 issues when I'm fluent in those 10 issues is easy for me, but my patients aren't necessarily thinking about 10 issues. And so does that one moment um, actually not make the most uh, of that time and, and breaking it up, I think is a, is a real opportunity. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I think like really, again, being, being creative about like chunking that time and trying to meet patients where, where they're at um, and, and just being fast and, and flexible. Mm. So if I had multimorbidity and I'm housebound and I'm able to access you only by telephone or video, I'm thinking, is it likely, do you think, that people are ignoring their other issues like, you know, the diabetes that was out of control, they're tending to say, well, I'll deal with that when all this is over and I can actually see the doctor face to face, or my hypertension is not something I need to focus on right now, or whatever other chronic disease they've got. And this is all going to end badly in the sense that you're going to have a lot more very sick people in six months' time. Do you worry about that? It's a huge concern. I think a lot of our, our patients in normal times really struggled to control some of their conditions because of a variety of uh, factors, you know, that, that are just structurally that they're experiencing. And I think now we're flying with less information. I can't get hemoglobin A1Cs for my patients with diabetes. I can't get, you know, blood pressure that's been checked two times in a clinical setting, five minutes apart at rest. Um, and so, you know, we do have less information, but I think to your point about, um, you know, being innovative, uh, I think, you know, a lot of the patients who I otherwise wouldn't manage with self-monitoring of their blood glucose, now that's in play because I don't need them to come in actually. Because if they can tell me that their, you know, morning finger sticks are, you know, actually around 100, great. I mean, it's different numbers for cross-country, so 100 is good in the U.S. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that like, I think that kind of creativity is definitely um, the kind of thing that that's possible. But for some patients, the they're not going to learn to use that machine. They're not going to have a machine. They're not going to come in for their hemoglobin A1C. And that type of scenario is going to happen across a variety of uh, medical conditions. And those people might go without care for three months, for six months. And, and it's you know pretty urgent that they, they would. 
so yeah, it's it's very very worrying. Okay, I'm going to pivot now and go back to your story, and let's start with your the your journey into medicine. Where did it all start for you? As a rising college senior, a professor gave me a book called Mountains Beyond Mountains, which is the biography of Paul Farmer a doctor who works in global health and um, started an organization called uh, Partners in Health. And that was a model of a physician that was clinical care, organization development, program development, and advocacy. And I found that so morally engaging, so intellectually engaging. I looked at all the different career paths that seemed so monotonous in one note um, and uh, sort of morally uh, less, less relevant. Um, and I, I was just very compelled by that. And so I, I dove into medicine based on that model of clinical care um, rooted in a mission of justice. And so that's really what got me started. And advocacy is really an interesting area because we doctors tend not to get into that kind of thing because it becomes controversial. You've got debts, you want to pay off your loans, you want to do all these kind of things. But there are people who regard this as a vocation and then go into advocacy, and you appear to be one of those people. What is it that's driving you that's not driving uh, your colleagues? That's a really big question. I think, to be honest, there's probably two big things. So one is just an awareness. Like, not everyone sees how the systems operate beneath the surface. And I think when you think about what is the day-to-day of medicine, what is the day-to-day of our patients' lives, how did we come to this place where this person became so sick and where you know healthcare within this system became so frustrating? Um, not everyone has you know been able to witness and understand all the things that led us there, the history of it, the complex systems. And so I think you know just learning that has been a big part of what has, if anything, like, I guess radicalized me to tackle some of those structural things. I think the other thing that really um, enables it for me is I don't think I would have emotional well-being personally if I didn't do this work. I feel like our systems are so broken and you know my patients are so needlessly uh, suffering and, and dying prematurely. And the only way that I can feel um, some emotional well-being to feel some control over it is to not just be a cog in a healthcare machine, but to also be like, hey, here are the ways that I think that system and our society are broken. I'm going to use my voice from my frontline experience to tackle some of those things. Emotional well-being, I absolutely get. But what other price are you paying for this? There is this aspect of having to cultivate your life so that it fits this kind of work. And so, you know, I, I see that as, you know, liberation work for for my own personal life because to work in, in a career and in a system that has, you know, saying like, oh, you can't be vocal on this. You, you can't do something that's maybe more political or more controversial. Um, I would feel very limited in that. And, and that would further, uh, you know, hurt my personal well-being. I, I think that said, like, that's where a lot of us find ourselves. That's where I found myself in, in medical school. That's where I found myself in residency. And so, you know, I made a very conscious choice when I was finishing my training. I really want to do a certain type of medicine at a mission-driven institution. And, and I chose to work in the public hospital system to do that and probably took a little bit of a pay cut. And then I also said, I also want to focus on these other bigger picture macro things. And I'm only going to work half-time clinically. And so I crafted my life to have that balance of the clinical work and the advocacy work. 
And I think by choosing my employer and knowing it was an employer who had values that aligned with mine, I've, I've been more able to do that work without feeling like, uh, you know, my boss is going to be mad at me. Um, and then I also, you know, have the time. I, I built the time that's carved uh, carved out for it. So I think that those are probably the, the biggest factors. But ultimately, I do think some of it is, you know, a, a degree of fearlessness. Um, I think a lot of people, um, you know, we, we start on this, uh, this training, this track of, of our training, and it's like get into med school, and you have to have like this perfect resume to get into medical school, and then you have to like get to the next level of training. And then people tell you about all the different careers that you can build and the opportunities to do that. And, and it's all very much, you know, like focused on developing a certain type of thing. And as soon as you go off those tracks, you know, it becomes a career danger. And I think there are alternatives that are, are actually really available. Um, and you have to have a, a little bit of fearlessness to say, like, that's actually what I want. And I'm going um, to forego maybe some of the other possibilities. Mm. Yeah, look, it's, that's very inspiring. Uh, it's inspiring because I do see that spark of vocation in some of my students. But I don't see it in all of them. And I can understand why, because as in the US, people have got debts, people want to get on. You know, if you said to somebody, would you like to have a career where we actually operate in this particular environment? And it's a deprived community, a relatively deprived community on the outskirts of uh, a very beautiful city. And they, they say, no, I'd, I want to work in the middle of the city. I want to be a cardiologist. I want to be a neurosurgeon. I want to be a vascular surgeon. I want to earn, I want to have that for me. That's what I've worked so hard to achieve. They don't see it very much in the way that uh, I'd like to think we, as you and I, would see it in the sense that seeing that we want to make a difference because of the personal cost. As you say, you take a pay cut, many other opportunities pass you by when you're not part of the machinery that has become the business of medicine. What would you say to somebody like that? What can you say that might boost those who, who have an inkling that they want to do what you do? Yeah, I think first of all, just have a bit of skepticism about what people are are telling you are viable career paths and, and what actually um, goes along with that. I think, you know, all that glitters is not gold. And there are a lot of things out there that people tell you, like, you're going to get this big grant. And they don't tell you about all the reporting requirements and the constraints and the time that's going to have to go into the bureaucracy of it. And, you know, but you see that that money and the title that you want a big grant. Um, and that sounds very shiny. But the day to day of it for the next five years might actually be not so shiny. Same thing for, you know, positions of leadership within institutions that don't share your values. You know, there's a lot of frustration that goes into that and a lot of time that you're going to spend. And I, I think, you know, I've been lucky to be a part of some intergenerational organizations where I've seen people who are on the other side of their career and they're frustrated by, you know, having gone through things that might have felt, you know, more corporate or less values aligned or, or whatever you might want to call it. Um, and they now feel like, oh, they're actually looking at the last 10 to 30 years of their life. And they uh, actually see that shinier period um, as not shiny, even though by, you know, resume and and things that you might put on paper, it, it looks quite appealing to some people. Um, and they, they have a thirst for something that has more um, satisfaction at, mm. at all. They'll be offered. Mm. What do you think characterize you as opposed to those who've taken a different path I I think I was a very grumpy medical student and I was a very grumpy resident because I wasn't in settings that, you know, matched what I cared about. And so, yeah, look for those people who, 
they might have good intentions, but they're frustrated by where they're at and be like, look, you can carve out a life that actually matches. You don't have to go through your entire life this frustrated. Um, so I think yeah, find those people who, who, you know, maybe have a vision of better, have a bit of frustration now where they're finding themselves and, and tell them, you know, what, what would it take to actually not feel so frustrated? I, I, I was probably pretty unhappy in, in medical school and residency, and I'm, I feel pretty satisfied and happy now. That's absolutely goes without saying. The, the, the concern I would have is that pure grumpy and dissatisfied seeing under the lid at that stage, some of that skepticism, some of that concern about the direction in which we're going is very valid. And in fact, how do you stop slipping into becoming cynical as opposed to becoming creative and uh, ambitious for your patients who are disenfranchised by the system? Yeah, I think part of what goes along with being skeptical of, of where someone is currently finding themselves and about the, you know, more constrained set of possibilities that are being pitched to them is, is also like a, a demand to explore and to, you know, not let the perfect be the enemy of the good and to say like, all right, like maybe this place isn't, you know, giving you the most satisfaction. Maybe these career paths don't seem like they resonate with, you know, the deepest parts of your soul. But like, let's do that, that exploratory work. And can we find, um, you know, different uh, career paths that seem to resonate much more? And, and I think, you know, some of that's, you know, very hands-on. Some of that's just, you know, in what you're reading. And I think encouraging people um, to just see the really wide range of what's out there um, in medicine or just in life. I think is really important because I think people, it's like anchoring bias, right? People here, here are the three different careers you can have. You can be a cardiologist, a gastroenterologist, or a surgeon. Um, which one do you want to be? And it actually, it's like much more broad than those um, as possibilities. So I think helping people uncover um, the full range. We're all about, in this journal, about small change, big difference. So what would you say about that? You know, what small change could you make today uh, as a junior doctor, as a medical student, that would make a big difference? Huh. I I think that, you know, I, again, I come at this from the perspective of we need to use our frontline clinical experiences to also transform the systems that we find ourselves in the society we find ourselves. And so I do think that there's something that's a bit of an obligation for us to each start building civic habits, um, carve out time, carve out community, Find spaces where you can actually begin to learn, to work with others, to do some sort of um, action that, you know, makes your community better, your, your healthcare system better, makes something better. Um, and just, you know, give that a label in your brain as this is my civic time. I'm building civic habits. And just like you might go on runs um, or do other forms of exercise as a habit, um, try to just like carve out that time uh, in your life and, and, and deepen it. That was a difficult question. It was a fantastic answer. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> I didn't know where that was going to go, but that's amazing. Yeah, I agree. I think you find a, you find something that brings you joy and you put time into it and you say, you carve out that time and you, you say, this is my contribution. This is the thing that I know could make a difference and that, or at least I can pour myself into for that little bit of time in order to, uh, make it a better world. So where to from here, Andrew? Where to from here for you? Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm finding myself in the middle of a pandemic, which is massively disrupting my work, my personal life, my family's life, my city, you know, it's just like massive, massive disruption. And, and 
I think I um, want to make sure that we're doing the right things in this moment. And so, you know, I've been very much vocal about, you know, mandated stay-home orders, um, things like deepening our, our public health infrastructure investments, because, you know, it's a huge issue in the U.S., but it's also an issue globally. Most places don't have nearly enough public health capacity to tackle this pandemic um, as it goes on for many, many months and even years. Um, and I think to do those things, we're going to have to use our, our voices um, based on what we're seeing clinically. And so I want to, you know, find other health workers to organize with and say, let's use our voice to demand some of these things. But I, but I also think that there are some other moments um, of opportunity that we really need to to not lose sight of, like the, the reasons why we find ourselves in this pandemic um, and a pandemic that is much more uncontained than it should have been. It shares a lot of features related to why other people don't have healthcare on a daily basis, why climate crisis is happening, and a whole bunch of other um, upstream drivers of all these different crises. And so I, I hope we can, you know, really use this moment to, to educate ourselves and, and uh, the public humanity wide um, about how, you know, we, we could do much better. We actually, you know, could all have uh, these systems that, you know, protect us and, and meet our basic needs. Um, and uh, we, can, we can do that transformation. Do you find yourself sounding more political as time goes by as opposed to more clinical? Or do you think that you will strike the balance? I think, you know, when I started off in medicine, I probably would have said I had two major hats. One was a, a, I was going to be going down a path of a clinical hat plus a nonprofit hat. And I think um, my time in the nonprofit sector has given me a little bit of uh, frustration, skepticism, alienation from it, you know, based on just uh, what's called the nonprofit industrial complex and how it sort of reinforces some some different structures and, and prevents us from, you know, more enduring policy change, frankly. Mm-hmm. And so that's what got me started in being more political and sort of being clinical plus political as opposed to clinical plus nonprofit. And I, I think that what I'm realizing is that is probably going to be my my career path. Um, it, it feels really right. It feels really right for where we're at humanity-wise. I think, you know, this moment, we just see a lot of different power vacuums. Everyday people aren't speaking up for, you know, themselves, their loved ones, and their communities. And I think, um, you know, we can't rely on others to solve our problems for us. And so I, I do believe um, that all of us sort of need to get better at using our voices and, and organizing together. Um, and I think, you know, for me personally, um, clinically is where I feel um, like I have so much of my foundation of experience um, to do that work, that political work. And so they're, you know, intricately tied to each other. Um, so I don't think it's ever going to be a shift where, you know, I, I would ever want to go like full time clinical because I feel like burnout from the political work. Um, and then on the flip side, I don't think. I would ever feel grounded enough if I was just doing purely political work. So closing thoughts, where do you think that we will be in another five years? Where would you, where would you like us to be and where do you think we will be? I oftentimes am asked to prognosticate about where the world will be, where the U.S. will be, where politics will be. And um, I, I will answer your question, although I do have to say I have a deep allergy to these kind of questions because my focus is always on what can we do in the moments that we find ourselves in now to make it the best scenarios in the future. And so, you know, I, th- I think too often if, if you ask someone who had, you know, heart disease, like 
where is this going to take me, doc? You won't say like, well, most likely a bad place. You would say like, our focus should be on the things that are intervenable now. Like, let's make this the best possible paths and like, let's make it align with, you know, your, your values and preferences and let's have that conversation. And so I, I really do try to focus as much possible on, you know, moments of, of opportunity clinically and moments of opportunity politically. Um, that said, I, I do think the scenarios in front of us are really clear. And I think they range from really horrible dystopia to really fantastic utopian kind of uh, society. And, and I think the choice is, is ours and, and how that unfolds. But, you know, there is a, a rise in nationalism globally. Climate crisis is unsolved, unaddressed. We're seeing right now what happens when we don't have strong public health systems globally, but definitely within nations also. And there's everyday crises of people just not having food, housing, health care. You know, economic inequality is rising, blah, 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 blah. There is so many dystopic possibilities. And, and we're seeing, you know, some of the, the worst versions of that are, you know, rising authoritarianism in, in many countries um, and a media environment that really enables that. So that's the dystopic range. Those things could get worse. They really could. Mm. That said, I think there are a lot more people on this planet who see human beings as the the morally relevant, um, you know, thing to, to think about, not their neighbors, not their countrymen, um, but just people. Um, everyone's a person. And I think there is increasing recognition of the complexity of the world and how much uh, technologic possibility we've already, um, you know, developed and what that could provide us all with. You know, we could get everyone food and housing and healthcare, and we could solve climate change. Um, and so I think that, you know, there is a, a version of this where we start to be like, why are we working so hard? Why are our problems going unsolved? Um, you know, maybe this isn't really arriving at the the better versions of the world that are that we do feel are actually possible utopias or possible better scenarios at least. Um, and and I think you know if we start to focus on on those, then I I do truly think that you know we won't be there in five years, but I think we'll be much closer to you know making sure that more people just by being a human being you know get food and healthcare and that you know, we're on the, on the road to actually decarbonizing and transforming our economy to, to move in that direction. And, and so, yeah, that, that would be my hope is that we've done a much better job at doing that. And again, I, I would just, you know, think that to do that work where we need to be in five years from now is much more focused, not on what is my career, what am I going to purchase on Amazon, but also you know, what is my role in, in as being a global citizen and, and how am I working with others to, to make those better scenarios? Small change, big difference. Small change as in the change that we can make within ourselves and within our communities, within the microcosm in which we all live to make a big difference. I, I believe you're right. I believe your more utopian ideas are right. I think that's where we're going to be. For what it's worth, you and I can probably agree on that. I don't think the world wants what um, some others have foisted upon us. And, uh, you know, I think that the idea that I could be meeting somebody 30 years, 35 years into my career, whose views I feel I can uh, identify with, uh, is very, very refreshing to me. And brings me great hope because I think perhaps, perhaps there is hope for us all. Yes, I love the optimism. I'm totally there with you. Well done. Thank you. Thank you so much. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at the Journal of Health Design 
www.sbscreenreader.com.au